a Black executive perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A Black executive perspective. I was about eight years old, so I was young. All of a sudden, out of like almost nowhere, I heard this crash and these people like stormed in to our synagogue. I mean, they were young because a lot of the people are young that do these things. And they just started calling us, throwing stuff at us and calling us names. And I was really scared because I thought, wait, who are these people? They don't even know us and I don't know them. And for some reason, I decided at that point, like, I wanted to get to know people who were different than me, and I wanted them to know me so that we wouldn't be afraid of each other. Welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit. Do you know what a social justice warrior is? You know, you think about it, you hear these terms and sometimes they sound positive, but then sometimes they could be negative as well. So let me see if I can help everybody out in terms of what is a social justice warrior. It is a term that emerged on social media. It is used to describe individuals who are highly vocal and active in promoting and advocating for social justice causes. Social justice warriors often focus on issues related to equality, diversity, and various forms of discrimination. They are actively engaged in discussions, campaigns, and activism to address these concerns. However, as in everything today, it's also employed in more of a derogatory manner to criticize those seen as overly zealous or self-righteous in their pursuit of social justice goals. Today, we will discuss what does it take to be a social justice warrior with our guest, Seema Lieberman. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Seema. She's the host of a great podcast called Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. And she's also globally, globally acknowledged as the inclusionist. She excels in developing inclusive workplaces that empower employees to excel in their roles, creating environments that leave a positive impact on pretty much everyone she kind of touches, which is awesome. Seema has also been honored as a recipient of the Global Diversity Leadership Award. Seema, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad you're here too. I mean, look, you and I met, you, you've been nothing but an a, a, a energetic uh, individual that I love to be around. I was so excited that you accepted our invitation to come on to our podcast um, you are, you and I and our teams are doing uh, similar things with your podcast. So we're going to dive into all that in your background. Um, and then we're going to talk about this uh, social justice warrior, right? And, and, the, and the good and the bad. So appreciate you coming on. So to get started a little bit, why don't you give us a little bit on your background, where you're from, family background, a little warm up before we get into the heavy stuff. Well, I grew up, I live in Berkeley, California right now. And I grew up, I grew up in the Bronx in New York. And um, I, and that's where I, I mean, that's where I got involved in social justice growing up in New York. I mean, should I tell you how it started? Yeah, tell, I mean, well, I mean you okay, can tell, give us a little high level and then All we'll right. dive deeper. Okay. Hey, the way this started was. I'm Jewish. I grew up in New York. It was shortly after the Holocaust. I heard all these stories about the Holocaust. Um, we were all pretty traumatized. And one day I was in synagogue with my father. I was the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And we were praying and fasting and being quiet. And then all of a sudden, I was about eight years old. So I was young. All of a sudden, out of like almost nowhere, I heard this crash. And these people like stormed in to our synagogue. I mean, they were young because a lot of the people 
are young that do these things. And they just started calling us, throwing stuff at us and calling us names. And I was really scared because I thought, wait, who are these people? They don't even know us and I don't know them. And for some reason, I decided at that point, like, I wanted to get to know people who were different than me. And I wanted them to know me so that we wouldn't be afraid of each other. But I also thought that for some reason, I said the only way to be safe is to be with other people who have experienced something like this. And I just started getting to know and hang out with other kids that were like, either that were black, they were African-American or they, they were um, from, from the islands, from, from um, Jamaica, West Indies and people who, and also and Puerto Rican kids, because that's, I felt that that was going to be the way for us to be safe was to, and I was really young, but that's how it started. Wow. And, and just to back up a little bit. So when you said people were throwing stuff through the windows, who were the people, who was, who were these people doing this? They, they were these young white kids who went to Catholic school. And I mean, they were older than me, but I, I was terrified. And, and, and obviously they were saying, you know, very, they were saying kike, they're calling us yids, kikes, go back to your country. And I mean, if it was today, but I was a kid, so, so yeah, so I was, it was, it, it was terrifying. And I mean, and that's what got me involved in the civil rights movement. And then I started going on picket lines when I was like about nine years old, because I just felt I felt that my freedom or my safety was could only happen when other people had were were safe and other people weren't being discriminated against. And I ended up I went on the March on Washington in 1963. I was really young. It, that impacted my life. I don't you know, I could tell you, yes, I did hear I have a dream. I was there for that speech. But I was probably too busy looking around, being obsessed with myself or other people, but at least I was there. Right. I mean, I, well, you know, number one, sometimes we're in a spot and things are happening and we don't recognize the significance um, um, of it. And I think most people don't until years later and history tells us that was a great time and that now it's reveled and it's on everything. And, and, you know, Martin Luther King's birth, junior birthday was just last week. So you, you know, so again, you were there, um, which was awesome. And, and, you know, one of the things in our first episode here, and obviously why, you know, I started this podcast was because of my own turning points when it came to race. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And then, but I just want to dive in deeper because I said a little bit, you're known globally as the inclusionist. So can you tell us a little bit why? Well, inclusion has always been really, my whole life, because I knew what it was like in different situations to not feel included for various reasons. You know, my parents didn't have a lot of money and sometimes I'd be around kids who had more money. I mean, but we didn't, we thought people who had elevators, who lived in buildings with elevators were rich. So what did we know? But I, I just knew what it was like. I always had that feeling of not being included. And I made it my mission, even though, I mean, even though I didn't know what I was doing, but just like as, as a person, as a young person, I made it my mission to always try to make people feel included. Like if I would go to a party and I'd see people by themselves, I was always the one to talk to them because I could relate. I knew what it felt to not be included. So that became my work. And then when I started doing my work in diversity and diversity wasn't called equity, inclusion, blah, blah, blah. Then it was just diversity. My focus was always on inclusion. This is before people were even talking about inclusion. They were just talking about diversity. And, and several people said, you are the inclusionist. And at first I felt weird. Well, do I deserve to have that title? And they said, yes, you are the inclusionist. And so that's, that's how that's how that started. But my whole life it was I was always like that. I was always the one that I always wanted to make people feel comfortable. I mean, I wasn't trying to rescue people, but I just knew that whatever happened, 
we needed to all be together. And that's why, like, when I, when I was young, also, I, I started working. I got involved with this white group. It was a white working class group called the Young Patriots. And we worked with the, with the Black Panther Party. They worked in the Black community. It was the Young Lords. They worked in the Puerto Rican community. And we worked in the white community. And we would bring people together, which showed me that it can be done. And, it's, and we would all get together and we would have open conversations and we would have dialogues and we would get to know each other. So I knew that that was possible. I knew that you could create communities where people were included. And I knew that people could come, that you could bring people together. And as the inclusionist, I did that. I do that in businesses and organizations. I mean, I'm not like out on the street, but I know that in organizations, it's really important. I mean, because when you think about it, people saying, oh, let's get rid of inclusion and diversity, blah, blah, blah. But I want to know on what planet would somebody have a business and not want everybody to feel included? Because when people feel included, they're going to do their best work. So maybe some people are reacting to diversity, inclusion. I, I don't know what they're thinking, but I just want to ask them. So if people feel included, you're going to have profit. But if they don't feel included, they're not going to do their best work. So you're going to go bankrupt. So I, I don't get I don't get it. I mean, it's so obvious <laughs> to me. Well, so. listen, I again, I you know, I'm your energy and passion is so infectious. And I can definitely see um, why they call you inclus inclusionist. I also definitely agree with you. You know, some people have that, you know, talent, that empathy, I, I should say, more empathetic in terms of seeing certain situations and, um, you know, putting themselves in that position and then reaching out to make people feel welcome. And, and you're hundred percent right. Who from a business standpoint or in any endeavor, who wouldn't want somebody to feel welcome? So I'm so excited that you're on here. Um, and so let me ask you this because you've uh, accomplished a lot. You just got finished just in the first five minutes from, you know, the Holocaust, to Martin Luther King, to the Black Panthers, to the Young Patriots, to, and we just getting started, all right, which is great, okay? Um, but you have a, a, a great podcast, Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. I've listened to it. it we're going to talk about a couple of the episodes today. You've invited me on as a guest, which I really, really appreciate. And, and more importantly, it shows a type of love and, and back to your moniker in terms of being the inclusionist. Um, but the question I have is, you know, why did you want to come on a Black Executive Perspective podcast today? Well, several reasons. One, I met you and I said, OK, well, he's got to be on my show. And because you talk about you talk about you talk about all issues around race. And I like the way that you talk about it because you're like me in that you're conversational and it's real. It's not, you're not just, throw, I mean, everybody needs to know statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you talk about like real people's experiences. Like you had a show on colorism. And I look at that because people, a lot of people don't really get the whole color structure. They don't really get the whole colorism that even in corporations, even in, in businesses, even that, I mean, the reality is white people not to disparage, but many white people trust light-skinned black people more than they trust dark-skinned black people. And I know that I had I have a friend who's a who's a mental health counselor, and he worked he's worked like with domestic abusers and all that, and he's black, and and uh, he was on my show, and and he was saying, which is true, he said that in the in the criminal justice system that Oftentimes, white people will get rehab or they get counseling. Black people will go to jail. And within that, he said, darker skinned people get more time than lighter skinned people. So it's like white, go to rehab. Light, you still go to jail, but you don't go to jail for as long as. And the darker you are, the more time you're going to get. And, and, and you, and I thought that was such a good show because so many people don't 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 realize that even they have their own biases. I mean, you know, by, people have biases within their own group too, but that it's it's impacted a lot of people. Well, and you're 100 percent right. And and again, for the audience, if you 
haven't listened to that episode, please do. It's called Colorism. Um, and we definitely, with Dr. Patrice Legoy, who has a PhD, who's really studied this, um, she was fantastic in terms of breaking it down. Not just here in the United States and not just with black people, but in every culture from a global standpoint. So thanks a lot, Seema. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now, here's the thing. You talked a little bit about, you know, and, and again, I'm thinking that's what it was, your racial turning point when you were a kid in New York, people in your synagogue, people throwing stuff in the windows, calling you all type of names. You're a kid. I'm, I would imagine it's the first time. Oh, I think you said it. It was the first time it ever happened. It really changed you from an individual and made you want to learn more about individuals, but more importantly, make everyone feel included. Tell me now, look, why did you start your podcast? Because you've been, you know, have this podcast now, I believe four or five years. You're very accomplished in a lot of different other things. Why did you all of a sudden say, you know what? I want to do this. Well, it had always been my dream to do something with media, but the, my podcast and the reason that I started it was that for years, I mean, ever since I was, when I worked like with, with in the Patriots, we would do dialogues, cross-race dialogues. I can't remember what we called them. You know, we weren't that sophisticated to say, oh, cross-race dialogue. But we would be black, white, and brown people together to dialogue and get to know each other. Because when you get to know each other, you can't hate each other. And then... um what started happening, I mean, I have friends, I have friends from all different backgrounds. So, and I, and people will know, I will talk about race anywhere, you know, because some people say, I'm afraid to talk about race. I say, I'll talk about it anywhere because it's, it's really important and with almost anybody. And so a lot of my friends, and I wasn't getting to see some, a lot of, some of my friends because they were busy. I was busy. But friends would call me to talk about racism. Like some of my black friends, like if somebody, a white person called them to say, hey, what should I do there? They'd say, talk to Simma. So then they would call me. But my white friends would call me and say, oh, was I being racist? Blah, blah. What should I do? Or I think I was racist. Blah, blah, blah. And then um, and then my black friends or, or my brown friends or my Asian friends would say, you know, this is something that happened. Listen to the. They go, listen to, you know, go, go listen to this. You got to know what happened. And I said, oh, man, yeah. Or they say, do you think that they were being racist? And at first I'm surprised. Well, don't ask me, you know. But and then I thought, you know what? I really want to get people to talk to each other. And actually, there were some shows I used to watch. I still do. Um, I don't, Do you know who Charlemagne the God is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. I was watching The Breakfast Club, and I thought, this is the kind of show that I want. And you would have all different kinds of people and they would talk about race, just like every an everyday conversation. I thought, this is what I want. And then I was watching, well, you're from the East Coast, you know, Jesus and Miro. They would like joke with people and they would talk about real things. So that was another one of mine. And then I watched Larry Wilmore. I just, you know, I want to have that kind of show. So my original idea was it was going to be cross-race. I mean, it's always cross-race, but I wanted to have different kinds of people, like more than one guest. But then it just got a little bit too hard to always have two guests, although I like having two guests. So it's always, it's a cross-race conversation. So it's never going to be two white people. It's always going to be me, white, talking to a person of color, or if I have a white person on, um, which, is, which I have, and then it'll be a person of color on the show because I looked around and I saw, Okay, so this is my dream. I'm thinking, how do I do this? Who's doing these shows? And I thought that the, I found that a lot of the good shows around race were done by people of color. And a lot of the white shows, not, we need everybody. I mean, we need everybody. Yes, we correct, correct. We need every show. But sometimes like the white shows were talking, other pe white people talking to each other going, well, we're guilty and blah, blah, blah. White people, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, for me, I'm like, no, I got it. It's got to go deeper than that. I don't want to have that conversation. And then, or there would be like a, a white person doing a show. And I made up this term. They would be like, kind of like a racial tourist. And again, we need all shows, but they'd be talking to like a black person. Like, I don't know, you know, some of the people and they'd say, well, tell us about your community. What does your community think about this? And I decided I wanted to have my show and have, at first I thought, well, I'm just going to have my show and bring my friends. I had my friends come on my show in the beginning 
you know, I'm a, a recovering drug addict, so I'd have friends talk about addiction and race, incarceration and race. And then people say, oh, you got to talk to these people. They're in the NFL. You got to talk to this person. They're a journalist. And and then I was contacted by PR people and people like you. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a long answer. So you could, you could interrupt, you could actually interrupt. No, me no, 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 because no, 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 so number one, it's very interesting. So number, number one, thank you for that. Um, I got a couple of questions here because you said some stuff that I wanted to back up a little bit. Okay. So you just said, Hey, look, I'll talk to anybody about race, whatever the case may be. Um, you said, Hey, when my white friends call me, my brown skin, black, you know, whatever, I'll talk to everybody. So let me ask you this. When, when, when you, when you're white, when you talk to race, well, let's say this, we, we'll not say it. Let's first uh, make sure everybody's clear. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, Race is an uncomfortable conversation. This is one of the reasons why we started a Black Executive Perspective podcast, to, to make these uncomfortable conversations comfortable. So typically, the majority of people don't, from, from an intersectionality standpoint, right? Yeah, we'll talk about race with our family. We'll talk with somebody we're really close about, but we won't have that conversation with somebody that's a different race of ours, Um even if we don't know them, but more importantly, even if stuff comes up, we could both be watching the the the, the new. I could, we could be in a, a a lobby or a store or something, and the TV is on, and we see the George Floyd thing, or we see you know what's going on in Israel. And we see these things, and people are scared to say you know what their thoughts are, positive or negatively, right? We just kind of keep it to ourselves because the fear of what can happen if we, if we speak out. Right. So when you were, you know, you're, you're willing to talk to anybody when your white friends talk to you about race, was it more about, um, did I say this wrong? Was it more about, I want to learn more? Is it, give us a little background on that. And then give me the opposite of when your, your friends of color spoke about race to you. Let me, let me think for a second. Okay. Well, like a lot of times when white people would talk to me and there's different white people, I mean, what I mean is it's white people. Um, for instance, like I hope when when I'm in, when I'm in, you know, I do a lot of facilitation in corporations and in organizations. So white people in those really like to talk to me because I don't yell at them, I don't put them down, right? And I try to make people comfortable and saying that like it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? If you've never talked to anybody who's different. All you have is your biases and, and you want to know. So there's ways of asking people questions. And so I help them with that. And like when other people that I know, some of them, um, some of them would talk to me. Okay. So here's some of the questions. (laughs) You can go ahead and say it's all good. (laughs) Somebody said to me, how do you, how do you meet black people? And I said, I don't know. I said, uh, basically, I said, well, it depends on what you're interested in. You know, it depends on what you're interested in. Because for me, it was just like, you know, I'm interested, you know, my friends are interested in what I'm interested in, or I'm interested in what they're interested in. But I think that if you want to, then I I said to myself, you know, no, that doesn't make any sense. Because a lot of people, that's just not how they roll, so to speak. So I said, okay, first start reading history. Read history so you know what the history is and then go places where there are like um, events like Juneteenth or I said, and don't go. And if you feel uncomfortable, don't go alone. Go with somebody else. You know, just you don't, you don't have to go by. Don't go by yourself. Go with somebody else and try to talk to just one person and find something that maybe that you have in common with like. Oh man, you know, this is a lot of people. Oh, I really like this music. Cause you got to start out with something slow and then other people. And then I have other white friends who will ask me, you know, is this racist? Did did what I say was racist? And I I know how to talk to people. And I never, when I was young, I was a yeller. You know, when I I was young, I was one of those cancelers, you know, because I thought I knew it all, but obviously I didn't. Um, and I, I just tell people, well, here's how you ask a question. And I said, you could always ask me. I'll answer to the best of my ability. And I ask people, like, what's the concern? What are they afraid of? What, you know, how, how, could I, how could I help them? Because I think that 
a lot of people who think that they talk about race, but too, a lot of other white people, they want to be like the good white person, so they want to put down other white people. And I'm, I say to them, well, you might be perfect now, but you weren't born perfect. At some point, somebody sat down and talked to you. I mean, at some point, you know, like I, I grew up with a lot of black friends, but that didn't mean that I really understood what they were going through. It doesn't mean that I really understood. I mean, I understood like prejudice is bad. Discrimination is bad. But it wasn't until we started having like those really deep conversations that I started to understand. I mean, obviously, I'm never going to understand 100 percent but that I started understanding more and people just don't know on their own. You know, you just don't, despite what some people think, you know, people have written books, despite what some people think, you don't just say, oh, I'm a white person. Okay. I'm going to like do osmosis. I'm not going to be racist. But at the same time, if you have a willingness to learn, then you could learn. And I feel it's my responsibility as a white person to talk to other white people, but to talk to people in a way that's not yelling at them. I mean, actually, like some of the people I have the, the easiest time talking to, um, like during the last election, somebody said to me, well, I don't talk to people in the flyover states. This is another white person. I'm like, what's a flyover state? Well, you know, those states where people fly over because they're racist. I said, first of all, there's no such thing as a racist state. You know, there's no such thing as a racist city. There may be norms that are like that, but everybody's not like that. Right. I said, and you start out by finding something that you have in common with them. You know, I lived in Oregon for a while. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this might put me on people's like negative list. But we we went hunting. Now, I'm from the Bronx. I mean, I saw guns, but they weren't they were aimed at people, not at animals. But um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't hunt now. I don't kill Bambi, just so you know. But I was comfortable around guns. I didn't have that freak out. So one time I was doing a workshop and and it was and I had these guys in my workshop it's law enforcement actually. And they knew I was from Berkeley and I'm doing diversity training and they're thinking, "Oh, yeah, we're going to show this liberal woman from oh, it was all men by the way, too." And somebody said something about hunting and I said, "Oh, a lot of people won't get this. I said, oh, did you have a spotlight? Did you use a 30-odd six? And they all looked at me like, what? She knows because, something, huh? Yeah. So then they loved me and I was able to find something to talk to them about. And I think that that's what's important. You got to start out with what you have in common. So I have an easier time talking to white people that are, well, I grew up working class, but also talking to white people from the so-called flyover states, that they're the people that don't think that they know everything. Right, right. And the people that don't know, and they'll say, well, I was somewhere, and somebody said, well, I never talked to a black person before. I've learned so much. And I said, well, maybe they never talked to a white person like you before, and they've learned so much. Right. I mean, got to be, that, anyway, so that's... Not to go on and no, on. No, 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 no. So it's all you know, good. I, I don't want to take over your show. No, 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 no. It's, it's fine. I, I, look, it's a rent to own, okay? So we're we're good. <laughs> we're good. I put it on verbo, okay? We I put it on verbo. You know, it's, it's all good. Let me just back up a little bit because you, and again, I love you. You, 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 you like I said, you're very passionate and I love hearing your stories. The thing is, is that people, we all have things in common, Okay doesn't matter what the color is. Now, there are certain things that based on our environment or our own personal experiences that may be different. Sometimes they may even be the same. Okay. Um, but to your point, you can meet any, you know, here's the thing. People of color have had no problem assimilating or meeting white people, working with them, hanging out with them. And nine times out of 10, for the most part, we're the minority of the situation, right? I've been in places where, you know, I've been the only black person at a company or in my division or, or maybe one of two of 300 individuals, okay? And, you know, you know, I had to learn how to chat with everybody, okay? And, you know, one of the things I learned a long time ago, a good friend of mine taught me this. He taught me this thing called form. Uh, and he was like, look, if you, and this is for anybody, this doesn't even have to be anything to do with race. He was just like, look, if you are a shy individual, 
you know, and you're just afraid to network and you don't know what to talk about. Here is a, a, a acronym that you can use that you can talk to anybody because it relates to everyone. And it's called FORM, F-O-R-M. And what it stands for, family. So tell me a little bit about your family. <laughs> All right. O is occupation. Where you work at? For real. Right. R is recreation. What are you doing for vacation? Oh, you, you play sports, right? And then M is whatever message that you, based on those other things that you want to share with the individual. So it doesn't matter. You can, we can meet anybody and have, and open up any conversation by using form, F-O-R-M, family, occupation, recreation, and message, right? However, all that being said, the stuff that you were talking about in terms of, um, you know, your friends, your wife friends reaching out and asking you and, to, and that's a good thing, right? They're trying, people are trying to learn and yeah. some people live in areas, there's no diversity. All right. I rather somebody, and let me ask you this, would you, would you rather somebody come up and say, and we laugh and say, oh, that's funny. How do you meet black people? But at least they want to. <laughs> All right. It may sound silly. It may sound because they're like, well, I can't. but at the end of the day, that shows some type of action that, hey, you know what? I want to start, you know, uh, 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 expanding my, my, my group of friends and start reaching out and meeting other people of color and stuff like that. So I don't see that being a negative, but let me ask you this though, you know, and you know, I, I, you know, obviously we're, you know, when, when people of color feel comfortable, um, no matter what the racial background of that individual, white, uh, Hispanic, uh, Asian, you know, we'll, we'll open up and share and we'll go deeper than, you know, the norm, right? Because we feel like, hey, this person at least understands it. And it doesn't mean that uh, the person is, is Angela Davis or, 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 or you know, uh, uh, you know um, uh, Malcolm X and they all, no, it, no, they don't have to know everything, okay? They just got to be open to listening and then providing some feedback, okay? So we're, we're, we're typically open to chatting with people that at least understand the issues. They may not, un they may not agree with everything. That's not the point. All right. Cause we can still be trying to be social justice warriors and still disagree about issues. And we're going to get into that. Right. So the question I have for you, you know, and I was checking out your podcast and it was, you know, and look, you, you, when you just got finished saying earlier, you talk about everything you, I'm just telling the audience, definitely go and check out her podcast because there is not a topic that she shies away from, to be honest. And I'm, I'm going to give you a couple examples, right? So your latest podcast, Cancel Culture, Unmasking the Dangers of Instant Judgment and Outrage, all right, which I, I, I love, right, because that's a big issue. Tell us a little bit, you know, why did you want to talk about it and what was the net net out of it? Well, I've always been against, like I said, when I was younger, I was a cancelist. I was a screamer. And then one day I was talking to a friend who was black and I was complaining about some white person because this is what I always wanted to be the good white person and blah, 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 not so much. So I said something about some woman and he said, you got to stop that. I said, what do you mean? He said, you have to see this. And he was talking about social justice. He said, like, it's a war. Now, anybody who I know, some people are like very pacifist, don't use the word war, but he said, it's like a war. And he said, you have to see yourself as either a black person running away from a plantation during slavery or a Jewish person running away from a concentration camp. He said, so what are you going to do? He said, if you run into people from the, the community or the town, do you want to say something to them so that they'll, they'll turn you in, that they'll turn against you and turn you in? Or do you want to at least neutralize them so they won't turn you in? Or do you want to get them on your side so they'll hide you out? And I thought about that for years, you know, I, and I still think about that. So that's always been on my mind. So when people started doing cancel culture, it really annoyed me. I mean, it really irritated me because when you cancel people, you're saying people can't change. And I believe that we all can change because I, a lot of stuff I didn't know about. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about. You know, and I have to learn. And I'm sure I've said some stuff that's, I know I've said some things that I, I, you know, that were kind of off the wall. And somebody said something to me. So 
I'm seeing more and more cancel culture. And I have been taught, my friend Joel, the African-American man, we've been friends for a long time. And we talk about, we've been talking about cancel culture, how much we could stand. I said, yeah, we could do a show. And then my friend Mushim, who's Japanese-American, she called me, she said, we got to do a show on cancel culture. I said, okay, come on. Because if we really believe in bringing people together, which I do, and if we really, and I think it's about empathy. And I think that people who are like the cancel culture warriors, cancel, 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 they don't have empathy at all. They, and it's a privilege. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to cancel people because you're saying we don't need people to get things done. I mean, if you look at change, change has happened because everybody got involved. Like even the civil rights movement. I mean, you had to have white people get involved because Correct. white people listened Correct. to white people Correct. and they were closer to the power. G- gay marriage, straight people listen to straight people. And we need everybody And this canceling is just saying, you're no good. Look what you did 20 years ago. They don't ask what's happened in the last 20 years. How did you change? How, who are you now? I mean, now, listen. I can tell you some stories. So, so I thought it was, I thought it was really important because I really wanted to speak up and share empathy with people that you could talk, anybody could come and well, anybody could come and talk to us about anything. Right. And we'll listen and we'll, and if, if we need to like say, okay, think about it this way. We will, but I don't want people to be afraid. I used to laugh when people say, no, people are just afraid to say anything. I said, oh, come on, it's not true. But I see it more and more. And then I see that like on so-called the left social justice. And then I see it on the the extreme right because they're always looking to cancel people. Right, right. You know, now now what they want to do is they want to make it illegal. Like if you accuse somebody of racism, you could be sued. Like, Yeah, well, the the thing is, is this. And, and and number one, I love that that episode. And you know, and look, and you're being honest yourself, saying, "Look, I used to be this type of person, okay, years ago." And you know, one of the things we all have to reckon, we have to recognize, is that there are no perfect individuals in the world. We all fall short in everything. And at the end of the day, who who gave somebody a magic wand? To go around and say that this is wrong and you shouldn't do this or he should be fired or whatever the case may be versus, to your point, loving the person where they're at and educating them and giving everybody a second chance. You know, here's the thing. You know, there's I I remember and and you'll probably remember this. Um, You remember who, who was the governor of Alabama? George Wallace. Okay. Now, most people don't notice, okay? They they know George Wallace as, you know, the uh the 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 uh, Stonewall Stonewall Jackson of uh segregation. All right. Segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. All right. Now, the real history of George Wallace, he didn't start off that way. George Wallace, in his earlier political, was trying to include people, okay? And yeah, I know Simmons looking at me for real. <laughs> Look it up. I knew about the post, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. But I want to get to that. I'm going to get to that. But in the beginning, he was more about trying to bring people along. But he lost the election. Okay, because when he ran for governor the first time, he lost, and his advisors told him the reason he lost is because he didn't take a stand against segregate. I mean, against civil rights. And then he changed and then he became the the definition of segregation. Okay. And people don't know this. He ended up trying to run for president and got shot. Okay. And then I read this. This was, I probably, and I can't remember the year, Seema, you may know. This might've been in the late eighties. But then I saw Coretta Scott King. I think it was Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow, I, I thought it was, it, it may not have been her, but I saw, it was a, a picture in a magazine. It was an article. And I saw, so I can't say it was Coretta Scott King, so I don't want to say that. But there was black people standing around George Wallace. And he said he had changed. 
Okay, and and they they were they forgave him. Or I, I got to look this up. I don't know if it was a Time article, whatever the case may be. But I saw it and I read it. And I'll be honest with you, at that time when I read that, I was like. He ain't changed. <laughs> you know, why are you even spending time with him? Blah, blah, blah. I was younger. I was like, blah. But the bottom line is, is this. If he changed and he's out trying to educate other people from his mistake, okay, then why? And, and again, talking to me, why was I looking? And I probably wasn't the only person. Why was I looking like, forget him, all the stuff he did, blah, blah, blah. We have to recognize as human beings, we all make mistakes. And, and, and I want to dive into your next topic because it speaks a little bit to this. Because at the end of the day, if you try to cancel people out and you try to dismiss them because they made an a, a error, all right, you're only hardening their hearts, you're not making them a part of the big tent. You're not showcasing love. You're just now making them even more uh, 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 more committed to their stance because they're saying, see, look at what they're doing. That's not helping them change. And we just had on our last episode, uh, what was the episode? The distinction of not racist versus anti-racist, right? And Renee, Renee Santos just said this. She said, you can't change people by shame, okay? It doesn't work that way. You just can't do it. They won't. You have to do by love. And so I want to go into your next uh, episode, a podcast that you did, which I thought, and I saw it on LinkedIn, and I thought it was great. And the, and the, the title of that was From Conflict to Compassion, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian leaders share their perspective on the Israel-Gaza crisis, all right? And, and for the audience, and hopefully you go to her website and you see it, and she had a picture of a, a Muslim, a man, I think it was, a rabbi, a, a, a Christian, a, a, a pastor, and all three of these individuals were together talking about the Israel-Gaza crisis, right? And and today, everybody, I don't, I don't say everybody, but a lot of people were afraid to even bring that topic up because it's so polarizing. Even if you're trying to dance in the middle, somebody's going to get upset. So I want to, I want to hear, you know, number one, why did you, and I, I, I think I know, but I'd love to hear before you tell the audience, why did you tackle that? And then the way you tackled it in terms of bringing somebody from the Muslim faith and the Christian faith and the Jewish faith together to talk about that, that conflict? Well, that's actually a really good question. I have been involved since I was young, since I was about maybe 18. I got to meet my first Palestinian person. We all went on a camp out. A group of us went on a camp out, and there was a guy from Palestine. And we were just asking, and the rest of us were Jewish. We were just all chatting away and just talking. And I've been involved, like, in Jewish-Palestinian dialogue groups for, I can't tell you how many years, like, over 40 years since I was really young. I was even in an Arab-Jewish theater group for a while. We had a guerrilla theater group. It was fun. Um, and I just. I mean, it's it's a long it's it's a long explanation. I'm going to try to shorten it because I saw so much dehuman so much dehumanization of people not having any empathy. Like I saw people um, not having any empathy for the 1,200 Israelis who were murdered. Who I mean, they were slaughtered. 1,200 or whoever were slaughtered, and I'm seeing a lack of empathy of people like dehumanizing them, like, so what, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of those people who were killed were in the peace movement. A lot of those people who were killed lived next to Gaza because they were working with people from Gaza. So I saw these other people, oh, well, they're just whatever. And then I saw a lot of other people, even more people, obviously, since 25,000 Palestinians have been killed, dehumanizing the Palestinians, saying, oh, they're not people, or like somebody was on TV or YouTube asking this Israeli guy, but why are you killing kids? And this Israeli ghost said, my friend, because what do you think these kids would grow up to be? And I 
was shocked. So for me, it's really important. And my synagogue, I go to actually a synagogue. That was my rabbi for my synagogue. And they ha we have a faith trio. And every year, we do things together. Well, what they do a lot, I, I mean, I'm usually working, but I mean, you, you think, oh, it's a faith trio. They must be doing some deep stuff. Together, they get together every month and they go feed the homeless and they work at the food bank because it's like something people could do. It has nothing to do with Muslim, Christian, Jewish, but they get to know each other. And then we have dinners. We have actually, we have dinners, um, cross faith dinners every year. Actually, the best food is usually when we have it at the, at the mosque. <laughs> um, I'm not disparaging my synagogue or the, or, or the Christian church. You, your food's cool also, but, uh, but they do have the best food. And I thought that it was really important for people to see that because most people have never met a Muslim. Now, Ali was not from Palestine, but he was a Muslim. And a lot of the Islamophobia, they don't care who it is. And most people have never even met a Palestinian because sometimes when people say stuff about Palestinians, I think, have you ever met one? Right. Or there are people like, in Charlemagne's show a couple of years ago, he really broke it down. He said, you know, most people have never met a Jewish person. He says only 2% of the population is Jewish. Most people have never met them. So people just have what they think. There's and it's no easier, easy to dehumanize people. And, and it really is about, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot, really that with diversity, equity, inclusion, all that, a lot of people could say that that's what they do, but they don't have empathy. I, I don't hear that empathy. I don't hear that compassion with people who are different or people. And I think it really is about compassion and empathy because that's what not only brings people together, but it makes it last. You know, it's more than just hiring five people. What do you, So when those five people are in your organization, what are you going to do? Right. How are you going to make it? It's about understanding people. And the dehumanization around what's going on in the Middle East, and I'm not even talking about where I stand right. politically, but I'm talking about the people. Like, who are the people? I, I read this book called The Sympathizer um, by a Vietnamese guy, and he, in the book, it's like, it's a made-up story of him playing a communist sympathizer from the North Vietnam and he's infiltrating South Vietnam. And it messes with his head because he gets to know some of the people in South Vietnam who were the enemy and they establish real relationships. And then he also has relationships with the people from North Vietnam. And, and it's the same thing that in our Palestinian Jewish dialogue group that, we've, that I used to belong to, people had never met a Palestinian or, or or an Israeli even. And then they found out that they had things in common, like you were talking about form. And what I do, like in all my programs, what are the keystones of my programs is we talk about finding commonalities in our multiple identities and that we have people talk about what's important to you. We have people talk about their family, um, about what their values, what they like to do, recreation. Because I tell people, like, you could have a whole room of people, all different cultures, all different colors, but somebody, I, I always say, how many of you are gardeners? You know, there's always like a black person, a white person, that, who's going to say they're a gardener. Uh, I say to people, I say, okay, look at these people, they're gardeners. Now, if they have a conversation about gardening and the type of soil, we are not going to understand it. But they have their own culture, and it's around being a gardener. So people are more than just one thing. So anyway... Right. Long story. No, I love it, my girl. About, I love it. I love about it. that show. And I just thought it's important because I know too many people. Well, I don't know that many people, but but I mean I know of people and, I, and I've talked to people who are like pro-Israeli and they don't care how many Palestinians are killed. And then I've talked to people who are Palestinian. No, I mean, they were not Palestinian. No, most Palestinians, when you, uh, most Palestinians tend to be very empathetic, but um, people who say they support pa Palestine, Palestine, Palestine yeah. and they think all Jewish people are like horrible or monsters. Right. But when you look at, when you look at, I mean, just when you look at demonstrations like for Palestine, there's always like a huge contingent of Jewish people. Right. And that's when you go on 
But when you go online, you know, and, and you always have Palestinians people, oh, I'm so glad to see my Jewish brothers and sisters, blah, blah. You know, so you know it's more than just that. And you can't dehumanize people. Right. I mean, you could if you want to. I appreciate you. So, and, and I'll, uh, and double A, I don't know if he feels the same. He can chime in. But just hearing what you stated, um, I've learned so much just in this last five minutes. And even your last statement in terms of, hey, when you go to these Palestinian uh, protests, or, you know, pro-Palestinian protests, there's a lot of Jewish people there, right? And you don't hear about that, okay? And, and, and you don't hear about, you know, I love that. If you can repeat that book, because I think that's a book uh, about the, the, the North, Vietn North Vietnamese person, you know, infiltrating South. And then, you know, that's really what it's all about. It's really about connecting with individuals but when you do that, then you can empathize with them. And I think, you know, this is what I've learned, Seema. Um, and then I want to I ask you this question about what does it take to be a social warrior justice? But what I learned is, is that the first thing that we have to um, lower, which is tough because we've spent our whole lives building it up, is our defenses, we don't listen to understand. We listen to defend. Okay. And that's an issue because if you listen to defend, all you're going to say, well, look what they did to me. And I can't believe this. And they did this first. And, and you're not listening to understand. Okay. And it's not about that. What happened to you is not wrong. You're right. That did happen to you. Oh, and it happened to them too. So we have to get away from this listening to defend and more about listening to understand. And, and I haven't read that book, but I would imagine the, the, the North Vietnamese who went and, and infiltrated in his mind, look what they're trying to do. They're trying to take my country over. And then the South Vietnamese person is like, they're trying to own all of, of Vietnam. But then when they got together and they got the defenses down, they started saying, he ain't that bad. <laughs> right? Well, he said he said he said that. Yeah, he ain't that bad, right? And that's where we have to go because these are uncomfortable conversations. But if we're willing to do that, and you being the inclusion inclusionist, we can. I mean, that we can. I mean, look. At the end of the day, we can make this world so much better. And not only will there still be problems, absolutely. Will there be disagreements? Yeah, that doesn't mean everybody's saying kumbaya. But what it means is, is that we start tearing these defenses and we start listening from a, a, a place of empathy. And, you know, basically what I've heard from you thus far today, that's how you've been throughout your life as when they were breaking the, the windows in the synagogue. So let me ask you this. In terms of social justice warrior, how would you, if somebody's listening right now and they're like, hey, I would love to, you know, be part of that, what would you recommend? I would say, I mean, for me, because remember, well, first you said, oh, social justice warrior. I'm not a social justice warrior. But then when you made the said the term, I go, yeah, I am, because I really am for social justice. And I think that if somebody says, I want to be a social justice warrior, for me, it's, do you care about people? Are you, do you have the ability to see people as individuals? And if you could do that, because I guess I am, like I am a warrior I'm in, in many ways because I believe in social justice and that social justice means including as many people as possible to understand each other. And when that happens, that's how we get social justice. But when people don't, we don't have social justice, no matter what, because social justice means the best. I think that everybody's included the best for everybody. I mean, yeah, this could be, you know, there's some people who are like professional racists, you know, they're professional bigots. That's what they do. That's what they live for. And they're not going to listen to me, right. but they will listen to this. A group called Life Beyond Hate or Life After Hate. They're ex-white supremacists. and they try to get people out of white supremacist groups. So those are the people, there are people who were like in the Aryan Brotherhood, they were Nazis, all this stuff. So they can talk to other people and get them 
on their side. Because um, I think that, what do they say? What, what, what demonstrations say? No justice, no peace. Right. But I think, it, I think it's true that you really can't have peace until you have justice. And the justice has to do with empathy and making sure that everybody's seen as a full human being and being willing to let go of racism and bias. And it's not easy. I mean, I used to be one of those people, though. We talked about people who are defensive. I used to be one of those people who I didn't really listen because I always knew I was right. You know, I was, and so I would get, I would really get defensive. I really, and it's something that's hard because when you have a belief that a certain kind of person is bad, that becomes part of who I am, part of my identity, that I'm the, this side, you're on that side. Right. And giving that up, I mean, a lot of times like people say, oh, you're going to give up your bias, take a class on bias. It's not that easy. I mean, it's a process. It's a process because it's giving up part of your identity. If your whole identity you've identified as, I don't know, like a racist, but I mean, don't say you're racist, but as, you know, white people are better or black, whatever. And then you start to meet people who are different and without even knowing it, you, you start changing how you feel and then you have to rethink. I mean, okay, here's, my partner died 20 years ago and um, a lot of the Palestinians from my Palestinian Jewish dialogue group came to the Jewish service. I had a Jewish service. She, my partner was African-American. She wasn't Jewish, but we had a Jewish service anyway. You know, we did everything. And one of my friends who had never met a Palestinian person and saw these Palestinian guys coming and participating in the service, she said, you know, I never really knew any Palestinians. I, I just knew what I had heard. She said, I have to rethink how I look at people. That was a big deal. You know, that was like, I sound corny, but kind of like a gift right? in a way. Right. Listen, you know, I love what you said, you know, when you were talking about the ability, there's no justice, no peace, but also the thing that from a bias standpoint, because we all have biases, it's not, it's not one group just have biases. All human beings have biases. And you're right. If they become hardened, then they are part of your identity. Um, here's the kicker, though, is that we're, you know, one of the things that is constant in our life it's the one thing that we always push back on. It's the one thing that makes people uncomfortable. It's change. All right? And you have to be open to change. Yes, you might have learned this a long time ago, and your parents or your friends or taught you this, right? But at the end of the day, we want to evolve. Our country has evolved. The world has evolved around change, so, yes, it's tough, it's difficult, but it's something, and again, you just said it a minute ago, right? Not everybody, some people, they, they don't want to change. We can't, we can't focus on that, <laughs> okay? We only can focus on the people that are open to change and then plant seeds with everyone else and put some water and sun on it and love it, and hopefully those seeds will grow at some time down the road. So let me ask you this final thoughts for our audience. What do you want to leave with them, you know, in terms of creating that racial harmony that you go out and fight for and chat about on a daily basis? Well, it's really important. And this might sound cliche, but it really is important to educate yourself. Read books. Read, don't just read one book because everybody has their biases in their books, but read books about and by people from different cultures. And I, like I said, read more than one. You know, one of my favorite things to read, I am so into fiction. I read mysteries and I read mysteries by all different detectives from all different cultures and all different countries. And I really learn a lot about some of the cultures. So read fiction, read nonfiction. Go see, and now because of online, you could go online and you could take a workshop um, about different cultures all over the world and do that. And then attend some events that are about 
different cultures. And yeah, it's going to be scary and you might be uncomfortable. You know, don't go by yourself. I mean, you could go by yourself if you want. I mean, like now me, I'll go anywhere, but, but I didn't used to, I used to be really uptight. You know, I never wanted to go by myself. So, and then just try and try to find commonalities, find something. There's always something to find commonality with somebody, whatever it is. And then once you find the commonalities, then you could talk about differences and then it gets really interesting. So that's, that's what I would say. And when people say be open, like, what does that mean? I've had people say, oh, I'm really open, but they're not open at all. They're only open to themselves or somebody who's like their best friend. So you have to be conscious of it. I mean, there were times when I know I might make a judgment about something about maybe what a culture eats or whatever. And then I have to catch myself. And see, for me, when I catch myself, it's good because I do workshops and, and programs. So I always have a good story. Well, I used to think this, but catch yourself and think about it. And you, it's so amazing what you learn. You will, your life is going to be so much more interesting and you'll eat a lot better too, especially when you start eating from different cultures. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you'll expand your, you'll expand your appetite. Like check out desserts from different cultures. I mean, that's something that's really interesting. I mean, if you eat sugar, just check out desserts or, or how different cultures make, how many different cultures make rice or how different cultures make beans. Right. You know, right. All of that. So, um, you know, so, so that's what I would say and take little baby steps. Little baby steps. That's all that matters, right? You don't have to try to do everything. Just do a little bit at a time. Start making it become comfortable. And then you will like what you're doing. So I totally agree. How can we, how can a black executive perspective help you, Seema? Well, many ways. I, you know, I'm a consultant in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have a program called Inclusive, um, Inclusive Leadership from the Inside Out. So if anybody is looking to create a more inclusive work culture, or if you're a leader and you want to become more really seriously inclusive from the inside out, so you feel it, contact me and listen to my podcast. I always want more listeners like your podcast. So that's how, that's ways that you can um, support me. And I'm a keynote speaker. So if you want to hear a funny keynote, somebody who will make you laugh, I've been told I make people laugh, uh, contact me. That's awesome. So look, you, everyone, number one, definitely go check out her podcast, Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People. Um, you're going to really, really enjoy it. You can also go to Seema's website, which is raceconvo.com. This way you can be able to connect with her, see all the things that she's doing, reach out to her. Um, she's just a wonderful person. I am blessed that I met her. And more importantly, we are blessed that she was here you know, providing her energy, her passion, her love for her fellow human being. So Seema Lieberman, thanks a lot. You fed us today. I'm very full. I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll want more. But the key is, is I'll definitely know who to go to. Thank you so much. I have loved, loved, loved being on your show. Well, thank you. I'm and honored, actually. We are honored as well. So I think it's time for... Tony's tidbit. So Tony's tidbit, and you know what? Base. I mean, Seema chatted. I mean, she talked a lot of a lot of great stuff, right? In terms of, you know, what she brings to the table and how she tries and really works on in terms of uniting and bringing people together. So I got two tidbits today because they encompass. Matter of fact, I should have twenty because of all the things that she said. Right? I don't think we got enough time to be able to do that. But my first tidbit is: the only way to deal with this life meaningfully is to find one's passion, be it in the arts, science, activism, or any other field, and use it to make a positive impact on the world. And, you know, Ms. Lieberman is, is, I mean, that she epitomizes that. And my second one is by Desmond Tutu. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So in other words, you can't be sitting on the fence. Either you are helping, you're involved in making change or believe it or not, you're involved in keeping things the way they are. And again, that's by Desmond Tutu. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, How to Become a Social 
Justice Warrior by our guest, Seema Lieberman. She, I mean, look, I, I could be here all day with all the, the little notes and bullet points that she left today, but the main thing out of it, she's very passionate. She, uh, something that happened to her at a very young age made her decide that she wanted to bring people together. It could have went the other way. She could have been hardened. She could have been like, I don't want to, I'm only going to stay within my group. I don't care about nobody else. But no, she didn't do that. She was like, I'm going to use this so this doesn't never happen to somebody else again. And she's been doing that throughout her life. The other thing is, you know, she talked about, too, you know, we talk about cancel culture. You know, we all need to understand that. There is no perfect human beings. People make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. I've said stuff that I regret. We all do it. I've said stuff that I didn't even know what it meant. Or I was trying to make a joke, but somebody loved me through it. They didn't just say, get out, Tony. They were just like, hey, Tony, that's not the proper way to say it. This is. And I thank them for that. And that will continue to happen. So we got to have the word, and I'm going to say this word because she spoke about it throughout this episode empathy okay we have to empathize with people that we don't know right and try to put ourselves in their shoes and really understand them and love them the way we want to be loved especially when we make our own mistakes and then finally this woman is active she's chatting with everyone she's out there pushing she's out there talking about topics that's uncomfortable, bringing all different people together. And yes, you may not want to be a Seema Lib Lieberman. You may feel like I don't have that type of passion or I, I'm, I'm an introvert and I don't want to go out and, and chat with everybody. And that's fine. But you can start, as she talked about, first with yourself and educating yourself and learning more about other individuals, taking those little baby steps. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, How to Become a Social Justice Warrior. Um, please give us a rating. Let us know what your thoughts were. Did you like SEMA? What questions do you have? You can follow a Black Executive Perspective podcast wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on our social platforms of X, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Tony Tidbit BEP. For my fabulous, loving, empathetic, inclusionist guest, Seymour Lieberman, my man, the dude that makes all these things happen in the background, double A, I'm Tony Tidbit. We talked about it. We love you. And we're out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, a Black executive perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle, and with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories.